Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sachs. And I'm Lori Sachs. And today we're joined by an old friend, Enrique Perez, an attorney who specializes in estate planning and living trusts and special needs trusts. So today we're going to have one of those conversations that the information here is to demystify and empower us with really understanding the importance of having a trust and what that means, what that looks like. Why is all of this so important to everyone, but especially our community? We'll also talk a little bit about conservatorships, what that looks like, and how to prepare. So welcome, Enrique Perez. Good morning, Enrique. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for, for inviting me. I'm so, I'm so excited. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I've been practicing law for 20 years, and I did not start my career thinking I was going to be doing anything around special needs. Not at all. That was not part of the plan. I started my career doing uh, investment visas. So I traveled to Mexico, Latin America, help investors invest in the United States. I'd help them with their business once they were here. And then after that, they would say, well, Enrique, now that I'm here in the United States and I have an investment, I have a company, you know, what happens if I pass away? So then I got into living trusts. And so those were the three areas. So I started with a big firm. We were about 1,200 lawyers. And then back in about 2010, I decided to put up my own office. And so I've been practicing on my own for 11 years, uh, total 20 years. Tell us how you got into special needs trusts. Absolutely. So, um, like I said, I, I, it was not part of my plan to get into special needs, trusts, or conservatorships. But my sister had her son uh, now 20 years ago, uh, and I saw how much she struggled. So he was born with autism, and she's a single mom. And I saw how much she struggled, not only in his schooling, planning for his life, and so I started to kind of learn more about her struggles and how I could possibly help her. But what really was the catalyst to get into special needs was I met a woman in Los Angeles who had been traveling from up in Fresno. And I met her at an event. We were doing some pro bono work at the LA Law, uh, Law Library. And she came up to me and she asked me, do you do special needs trusts? And I said, I, I could do special needs trust. What, what, what's going on? And she said, so I have a group in Fresno in the middle of nowhere, and it's all Hispanic families. None of them speak English. They're all farm workers. And there are no services for anyone with special needs. There's no information. There's no education. The schools couldn't care less. So she says to me, I started a group of just moms and dads, all, of all farm workers that have special needs kids. And we would love it if you could come out 
and provide a seminar for us? And I said, yes, I will go. So I took a flight to the middle of nowhere, was picked up in a pickup truck by one of the guys, their coordinators, and he drove me to some school out there. I mean, it was literally out in the middle of nowhere. And the place was full of families and all of their kids. And it was the first time in my life that I had been around so many children with Down syndrome, autism, severe autism, and other major disabilities, sitting with them. I had spent my whole life thinking one way, being completely misunderstanding that community, completely misunderstanding. And grew up in the 80s, you can imagine, you know, what you hear in what you think about those, about those families and that changed uh, my career. And it was amazing to me to see, number one, the lack of education for these parents, the lack of resources from that county and, that, and those cities. No, there was no information of any kind, let alone in Spanish, of what is a special needs trust or what's a conservatorship. And so I did the presentation and I probably went another five times. None of them have ever been able to retain me. And somehow that's never been an issue for me. I still go, get picked up in a pickup truck, and they drive me out to the middle of nowhere. They then started to talk to groups here in LA and Orange County about this guy that's, that keeps coming over, giving us all this free advice, sets up trust for us for at no cost. And then they started to talk to groups here and that's how I got involved in so much outreach to churches and nonprofits. And that's kind of what led me into uh, not only doing special needs and conservatorships, but more importantly, really, truly, truly understanding this community, these families, the incredible love that they have for, as they say, our special children, and really understanding who I'm serving when we do these special needs and conservatorships. It's, uh, it truly has been a life changer and it really came from out of the middle of nowhere in Fresno. Well, we've known you for a really long time. And as you're talking about these different events, I, I remember you telling us as you were doing and as this was growing. And so this uh, this is the part of the episode where you're a lawyer, but you, you're not just a lawyer. You've come through. And I think there's, there's a bit of your story. You overcame a lot of odds. You became more than probably people ever told you would be. And just in a phenomenal way, you've always just risen above any kind of limit or boundary that society may have put on you, which is something that our listeners definitely identify with when we are advocating for Liam's journey. And I love that you're talking about that you'd never been around families or children really, or people with Down syndrome or autism and any really disabilities for the, for historically disabilities have been put you know, even if, if we're allowed in school in a classroom at the back of the campus. And I think that, you know, inclusion is a huge topic that we're always advocating for inclusion in the classroom. And that helps to create an understanding 
that we're all humans, right? We're all on, on this journey. So I think that's, that's so interesting that you would talk about because inclusion is a huge topic on, on our podcast. And um, wouldn't it be great if you would have had an understanding of these families ahead of time? I mean, I grew up in a, in a middle school where anyone with a disability, Down syndrome or other, would be excluded. They would be separated completely from, from all of us, which doesn't help. Um, I also grew up in a community where anyone with a disability was basically put in a dark room. They weren't participating in our events. And I, re I remember there was a neighbor where we knew they had a child that, would, that had Down syndrome. I remember just thinking, why don't we ever see him? We never see him. He's always in the house, like never, ever comes out. You know, I think you grew up in that, that kind of state of, well, they're different, where now uh, the word special is with these parents groups and, and all the work that we do is truly special. It's not, well, they're special. It's, they're special. Uh, what's made me grow more into this, into this area is really, and in conservatorships, and I'll talk a little bit about that right now, you really advocate for the individual. This is not somebody with a disability. This is an individual that likes to do certain things. And so when you're in, in, in court trying to obtain a conservatorship, all of that comes out. And it's beautiful because, because it's not just we need a conservatorship with somebody with Down syndrome or we need a conservatorship because they have severe autism. It is we need a conservatorship. And here are the restrictions on that conservatorship because this individual likes to do these things and we're not going to restrict that. And so that area of the law is so special because you truly take into account the individuality of every person. They're not excluded. And the, their attorney advocates for them on, on their side. So, and I can go through a little bit of, of, of all of that, but certainly if, if okay with you, we can start with trust and then move to conservatorships if, if that works for you. Yeah, I, I just wanna say that I love that you differentiate the difference between how you say special. Because I think that as a lawyer, you understand the power of language. Most of our journey when we're dealing with IEPs is we understand the power of language. You literally have to know the exact word, the exact term of what to ask for. And it's so much power. So I love that you differentiate and um, normalizing different, that we're all different and taking that stigma out. It is so important. And as you're listening to this, as far as conservatorships and trust, it is, it's not about, this isn't something that you just do with someone with uh, special needs, with Down syndrome, with autism or anything. This is something that you create, people create for everyone, right? It's across the board. It's neurotypical people have trusts and conservatorships as well. You know, as parents, we go, we are even going into this conversation thinking we need to have a trust for Liam. And it's so much more weighted, the importance and need than our thoughts of we need a trust for Sophia, but they're both equally as important. But somehow the fact Liam has Down syndrome creates more of a stress in us. You will discuss the importance of being very specific with that trust, but it still shouldn't be more weighted as parents one to the other. But I just, I really want to relish in the fact of who you are and what an accomplished human being you are and 
I love the journey that you took and the open mind that you had to go in to different communities and to learn and then to make a difference and change because the woman who approached you, what a wonderful advocate this woman in this community was and what a great advocate they turned you into. So let's go into the meat of this conversation and talk about the, you wanted to start, start with trust. Sure. We can start with trust. So most people don't know, but if, if you pass away, if you pass away uh, in California and you don't have a living trust, then everything you own has to go through a process called probate. And a lot of people think that automatically your children will receive your assets and they will ultimately, but after you go through this process of probate, probate is extremely expensive. The, the probate court takes the value of your entire estate and off that value, the gross value, regardless of any debts or anything else, is how the attorneys, the administrator gets paid. Everyone basically gets paid uh, out of those assets. And once all the debts are paid and every, the attorneys are paid, everybody's paid, then your children receive whatever's left. That is a major, major problem in this country. I would say that 85% of people in this country do not have a living trust. Uh, it is big business for attorneys uh, because you can make 3% of the value of someone's entire estate in probate. And we do do probate because we have so many folks that just don't do a living trust. But a living trust is the way to go. So what is a trust? A trust is an agreement between husband, wife, father, mother, whomever. And it's an agreement where you basically say, when that day comes, this is what's gonna happen with everything that I own. Now you can start with one home and a bank account, but then you're gonna pass away hopefully 20, 30, 40 years later, and you accumulate more assets. You continue to include any assets into that trust. Because there's one thing we know and one thing we don't know, all of us. We know we're going to pass away. We just don't know when. So when people ask, well, when should I prepare a trust? It's, well, unless you know when you're going to pass away, you should probably do it sooner than later. Because that is the one thing we don't know. Okay, I don't know if I'm going to pass away in five minutes. Hopefully we can finish this podcast. Uh, or I'm going to pass away in another 30 years. I have no idea, right? So we want to prepare that. We want to make sure that our family is protected. So once you pass away, everything will be distributed to your children without having to go to the probate court, okay? Um, in the trust, you're also going to appoint what's called a trustee. When you, as Stephen and Lori, have your trust, once the two of you pass away, you're going to have to have someone in that, someone that you nominate, that you appoint, that will do what you put into that trust. So if you say, once the two of us pass away, we would like both our children to equally benefit from all of our assets, and we want you to distribute 50-50 to them, then that's what that person will do, okay? While the two of you are alive, that you can change the trust as many times as you want. Right? So you start off by 50-50 for to our children, and you think, wow, that uh, Enrique is such a great attorney. We are going to include him in the trust, and we're going to now split it three ways between our two children and him. 
So you can continue to make changes. Once the two of you pass away, it's irrevocable. No more changes. And now your trustee has to do exactly what you put in there. So when most people talk about a living trust, they're really talking about four documents. Okay, they call it a will, they call it a trust, but they're really talking about four documents. The first document is the one I just mentioned, which is a trust, a living trust. The second document is a will, and your will does three things. The first is if you have children that are under 18 years old, this is where you will appoint a guardian if, for example, God forbid the two of you were to pass away. Even if you have no assets, but you have children, you have to have a will. Because if you don't appoint someone, if you don't have a will, and something were to happen to you, then child protection services will take your child. And it takes maybe five, seven days for some family member to somehow get some authority to take that child. Okay? So if you have a will, in the will it says, if we were to both pass away, then X person will automatically become the guardian of my minor child. Very, very important to do that. The second thing that the will does is it distributes your personal assets, right? So the trust distributes your home and anything that's worth more than $165,000. The will distributes all your personal assets, right? Photo album, furniture, all the other jewelry, those kinds of things. And the third thing it does is when you establish your living trust, you put your home in that trust. So you transfer title to that trust. Sometimes when we do that, years later, that family does a refinance. And when you do a refinance, the home comes out of the trust and sometimes the bank doesn't put it back in. So that means that if it stays that way and you pass away, the home is outside of the trust and could possibly go to probate. What the will does is the will says, if anything is left outside of my trust, when I pass away, our intention is for it to come back in. Okay, that's, that's why they always go together. The third document is called a power of attorney. So if one of you were to lose the capacity to make financial decisions, one of you would have to go to court and obtain a conservatorship over your husband or your wife. You couldn't automatically start making decisions for them. So in order to avoid that, you have a power of attorney where you say, if I were to lose the capacity to make financial decisions, then my wife or my husband will make decisions for me. If we both do, then X person will make financial decisions for us. And then the fourth document is called a healthcare directive. Same as the power of attorney, if I lose the capacity to make healthcare decisions, then my husband or my wife will make decisions for me. And if both of us lose our capacity to make decisions, uh, somebody else will make decisions for us and you don't have to go to court. So those four documents, which most people call a living trust, a will, is the four documents are an estate plan. And it's what everyone needs. And people ask me, well, do I need all of it? Do I have to get all of it? Again, unless you're not going to die, or if you know when you're going to pass away, or if you know that you will never lose capacity, then you don't need any of these documents. But the fact of the matter is that those are all those are things that can happen to any of us. 
And so, especially if we have children, we want to make sure that we have these documents in place. How much does it cost to make a trust or a will? For all those documents, you're looking at anywhere between 1800 up to $3,500. And in the day of Googling and technology, is this something, are these papers that people can find online, access, and, and create on their own? You can. That's a good question. So you obviously, everyone's heard of LegalZoom, and there's other platforms where you can go in there, put in your information. So I always, you can certainly do that much, much cheaper. But it's like, uh, it's almost like going to your doctor, they look at what's going on with you, and then they give you recommendations, advice on how to to solve certain issues that are going on. It's the same with an attorney. The reason you go to an attorney is because every single family is different. There's so many things that that, that need to be done to customize the plan for you. Because if you just fill in the gaps, it just, I've never seen it work well. If you're just going to go in there and just fill in the gaps, you really need somebody, you need to talk about what's going on with your children. You need to talk about what the plan is for each of them. In 20 years, I've never met family that's just like another, right? You have three children. One is really good at something. One's having some issues. One wants certain things. You have to be able to customize these plans. Second, there are a lot of issues going on in our families, right? So in the last, I would say two years, I've seen a lot of families that are struggling with their children with substance abuse. So if you just put in a trust, once I pass away, distribute money, equal shares, what happens if one of them has substance abuse? Now you've just given them money to continue versus customizing the plan where if one of them has an issue or a problem, then we can try to take care of them without giving them resources to continue down that path. But I think that's a valid question because a lot of times we think that we can do it on our own. And I guess if you have to do it on your own, but it's best to have somebody who knows what they're doing, who's actually- It's better to, well, I want to be careful here. Sometimes people say it's better to have something than nothing, but if it's not prepared correctly, it could actually backfire. But if you really, literally, especially a will, a will is pretty straightforward. If someone doesn't have the financial resources to go to an attorney, but they have minor children, at least do a will, at least do a will, okay? And I can, I can tell you there could be zero cost to a will, zero, okay? I do this at all the seminars. I tell them, you don't have to pay anything. Here's how you do a will. You write it and on any piece of paper. You have two people that see you sign it, two people that are not beneficiaries, that's a legal will. We've all seen that in movies. <laughs> and those two people sign the will as well, or they just need yeah, to so see they it? witness it. So they will sign that they saw you write it and sign it. Okay? Now you have a will. So have a will so that your minor children are taken care of. At least that. But the importance of a trust is to customize and take care of each individual because we're all different. And that goes right into, as far as customizing a plan, is there's a special trust that you can do for children with disabilities, correct? Yes. So so what I talked about, having a living trust, a will, your power of attorney, and a healthcare directive. But when we have a child with special needs, you definitely need what's called a special needs trust. 
This isn't an extra trust. This is a trust that is for your entire family. However, in that trust, you will have provisions that are specific to your child with special needs. Now, why is that important? It's important because when we look at living trusts for families that don't have a child with special needs, you're really looking at different things. How do we avoid probate? How do we avoid any issues with the family? And how do I avoid tax issues? When you're looking at special needs trusts, you're looking to protect the public benefits that the child with special needs is receiving, whether it's supplemental security income or it's going to be Medi-Cal. Now, in any of those programs, they're extremely important to these families. Supplemental security income provides income for that child, even when they're adults, because they can't, they can't work or they can't work, they don't have enough, they don't make enough income. So that's very important to them. However, if that child ever receives more than $2,000, they're disqualified from that program. So what happens in our, in our families that have children with special needs is they say, well, I've got three kids. My kid that has special needs, that I'm gonna give him or her 80% because these other ones could take care of themselves, but they're really gonna need it. And they do that. And we have uncles and grandparents across the board that leave that the child with special needs more than anything. But at the moment they receive it, they're disqualified from SSI and Medi-Cal. In most of the families, Medi-Cal is extremely important. It pays for so much that that child needs. And so how do I avoid, how can I, how can I as a family member, as a parent, leave my child with special needs with a large enough estate, as much as I can possibly give him or her, that will last their entire lifetime without disqualifying them from SSI or Medi-Cal? And the only way to do it is to establish a special needs trust. Now, how does that even work? A special needs trust, anything that you put in there for your child for special needs does not supplant, is, is not a replacement for SSI or Medi-Cal. Because what does SSI pay for? The minimum, food and shelter, Medi-Cal for all your health needs. Well, what's missing? How about quality of life? How about each, each one of these children that, that I've met, whether they're children, they're already adults, they all like to do certain things just like we all do. They're not just sitting there going, okay, I just want my food and shelter. They like to take trips. They like to play games. They like certain music. They like all these activities. Well, who's gonna pay for that? SSI is not gonna pay for that. Medi-Cal is not gonna pay for that. So the whole reason around special needs trust is to avoid disqualifying them. But more importantly, in my opinion, is to provide a quality of life for that child, for what they want to do, right? If they like to take trips, they'd like to do certain activities, camping, whatever it is, something has to pay for that. And if the parents pass away and the trustee of the special needs trust has resources in there to continue to provide a quality of life for that child and then adult, that is why we have to have a special needs trust. Avoid the disqualification, but also provide for the quality of life, for the things that they actually like to do. So a family, let's say a family with three children, 
One is a, is a child with special needs. You would still establish a living trust, but it's gonna be called the special needs trust. You would leave in there that once the parents pass away, you can say, my three children will receive equally from our assets. You can say the child with special needs will receive a little bit more or 100% and the other ones, not much. However you wanna do it, but regardless of what you leave them, you're not gonna disqualify them. And you're also going to try to set up a plan to ensure that they have sufficient resources for what they wanna do, for the quality of their life. It's not just about food and shelter as we all know. So the new name of your living trust, the entire living trust is called a special needs trust. Right, so let's say in, in your case, you all establish uh, the SOX special needs trust, okay? Everything is gonna go in there. Now say that I decide, you know, I'm gonna leave something for, for them as well. I'm gonna leave something for him, for Liam. I can establish a special needs trust just for him, right? So let's say that we have, the, the best thing that you can do in these circumstances, if somebody says, I wanna leave something for Liam, is to let them know, okay, you either in your trust can say, when I pass away, this amount of money or asset or whatever it's going to be, I want that transferred to the SOX Special Needs Trust for Liam. And your trust will say, anything that's received for Liam is for his quality of life. It's to supplement the SSI and the Medi-Cal. So it's very clear in there. Now, why does it have to be clear in there? Is because it has to be clear that your trustee cannot use that money for anything that SSI and Medi-Cal can cover. Now, if SSI or Medi-Cal don't cover something, your trustee can do it. But it's supposed to be a supplement, not something that's going to supplant the public benefits they're receiving. So if somebody comes to you and says, I want to leave something for Liam, they could either do it via their trust and say, when I pass away, I want X amount of money to be transferred to the SOC special needs trust for Liam, or I can establish a separate special needs trust just for Liam. Uh, now, why would I do that? Because we can speak and say, well, I think my resources of our family, I'm not sure it's going to be enough for his entire life. So maybe we can establish another special needs trust that if our resources run out, then your special needs trust kicks in and continues. So you can have numerous special needs trusts. The less complicated way is basically you have your trust and everyone kind of transfers their assets into that trust so that you have one trustee taking care of everything for, for Liam. And that, that would be documented in, yes. in the trust. What I love that you said is you said it's to provide quality of life and not erase the SSI and the Medi-Cal. But when I first heard you, it said equality of life. And I think that's really what it is. It's equality of life because Sophia will receive money and that will, she's able to make her own decisions and use it on what she wants or likes or if she wants to take a trip. Right now, Liam doesn't have that same ability or right. So it's about not only quality of life, but equality. And I think it's important just to have that 
the to create that it's an, a special needs trust for the entire family because we we all do this together as families. Absolutely, and and I think um, as as advocates for special needs trusts, you know SSI is great and Medi-Cal. Thank goodness we have Medi-Cal, but our life is not just food and shelter, especially our children. Our children grow based on the experiences that they have, the access to things that they have. And so that is the quality of life, right? So as Liam moves forward, just like Sophia, his life is going to be really formed by all of these experiences and access to things and activities. And so SSI and Medi-Cal don't pay for that. And so there had to be a way to, to guarantee, as you say, the equality, that he too would have the opportunity to experience different things and do the things that he likes to do. That's what a special needs trust allows you to do. It's basically inclusion for the, re- for the rest of your life, right? It's inclusion. And I love that the document isn't, we're going to create a trust for our family, and then Liam gets a special needs trust, because that's part of that segregation that happens. The entire document is a special needs trust because we have some special needs. And let's face it, you could probably call every trust a special needs trust. And also, you're a practicing attorney in California, but these are benefits that you can receive nationwide. And this is a thing that you can do in whatever state you're in, correct? Or country. So SSI is a federal program. So that's something that children across across the country are, are, are able to receive if they have a disability. Uh, Medi-Cal is, is just for, for California, but every state has their type of Medi-Cal. It's the type of, it's the state Medicare program. The vast majority of countries have their type of special needs trust to avoid losing uh, public benefits. Absolutely. Because we have listeners in different parts of the world, and so just just so it's you know applicable for them. So the those so those are the two types of trusts, and we're we're speaking more on when you're creating your entire estate plan. It's a special needs trust that you want to create. If you have other people who want to give to both of your children for your neurotypical children, it's the same. It's that piece of paper with some signatures on it. But if your child has special needs, encourage them to create a special needs trust on their own or to put into your special needs trust if they want the benefits of that trust to actually be received by that individual. Absolutely. And and that's why um, there is no legal Zoom for special needs trust. It's it's an area that, it, that you need you need the expertise there for, for certainly for a special needs trust. But that's why speaking with an attorney is so key because we'll get parents that come in and say, well, I have a friend that wants to leave him some money and I have grandparents that want to and I have my sister that wants to. And you have to kind of coordinate all that because not just to ensure that the child with special needs doesn't get disqualified from those public benefits, but also to kind of coordinate what is it that we're trying to do, right? So everyone's, everybody wants to give money, wants to help. Okay, well, what's the plan? What is the plan for him or her? What do the parents want him or her to do? What do they want to do? And so what are the resources that we want to provide, right? Because it's about that quality of life that experiences. We've had uh, families that come in and, and I always ask them, what do they like to do? What do they like to do? Oh, they love to travel. Okay, well then when we de- develop the special needs trust, let's make sure that the trustee knows that they really enjoy to tra- they enjoy traveling or they love going to Disneyland or they like going shopping or they're all very different. 
So we want to make sure that we always include that specifically in there because the number one concern for all parents is once we're gone, who is going to do this? Who is going to follow up? And so we want to make sure that we're as, as specific as possible in that document of what our child with special needs enjoys doing and benefits him or her. Well, we've had guests on the show that have Down syndrome uh, that work full time. Uh, we hear stories of this has just becoming commonplace. And this special needs trust setup benefits the adult that also works and pays for their own living expenses and things as well, correct? Absolutely. So the, tech, the, the technical part of the special needs trust and why it doesn't disqualify them from their public benefits or how if they're able to work full time and, and, they're, and they're productive out there, why this still would, would work is that they don't technically control those assets. They're the full beneficiary of it. They have 100% of the benefit, but there's a trustee, a person that the parents have chosen to ensure that their child with special needs receives whatever has been provided for him or her for their quality of life. So the child, then an adult, doesn't have control. They have full benefit, but because they don't have that control, the state can't say, well, you have a million dollars in your trust and you're still getting public benefits. They would say, I don't have control over it. I have no control over this, right? My parents left it for me. My grandparents left it for me. A friend left it for me specifically for this. The trustee can't use it to supplant my public benefits. That's the technical part of it. But absolutely, we've had many families come in with their childhood special needs, Down syndrome, very productive. And that's where, when we go into a conservatorship, why that's key. How much are they able to do? How productive are they? How, how independent are they? That all comes into play during a conservatorship. Well, let's talk about the conservatorship. But first, when you're talking about the special needs trust, my daughter would have free reign to spend it on whatever it is that she deems. And I don't have control over to say what that is. I guess there's special ways I could you set could, it up. I, guess, yeah. I could, but it's most likely not going to be what I do. With my child with Down syndrome, there will be that trustee that's controlling it only for the purpose of not losing those benefits. But to make it a little equal, that happens to neurotypical children as well. Am I correct? There are parents and grandparents that also leave trustees to distribute the money as they deem, or, or is that only something that you would do with something with, with an individual with special needs? This is done for all children. This is not just for a child with special needs. The only reason that you continue to have a trustee for the child for special, with special needs is to avoid being disqualified. However, I've had numerous families that don't have a child with special needs and they have a trustee with very specific instructions on when they can give their children money, when they shouldn't, right? So for example, you could say, well, we're leaving you this money, but if you're not gonna go to college, then you don't get it or we're leaving you this money and the trustee will give it to you, but it can be for a down payment for a house. It could be for this, then the other. It's not gonna be for trips. It's not gonna be to get yourself an expensive car. There's all kinds of restrictions 
but that's a very good point because this is not just done for children with special needs. The only reason you have the trustee is not because they're a child with special needs, but because of the way the law works, that the child with special needs, even those that can manage their money, you still want the trustee to do it because that allows them to say, I don't have control over it. Very good point. And so you, you make that trustee decision, you pick that person in a backup probably, and someone that's going to be there. What happens when the child outlives the trustees that you've appointed? So what we do is we typically have two to three options for the trustee. You want to continue to have as many as possible, but that's always the top challenge for every family. Number one, who is going to take care of my child the same way I do? That's a tough one. Uh, Number two, it is a trustee in the words in there, trust, right? You're going to have this somebody that you trust. But more important than the trust, because the special needs trust itself will have everything that this person can and cannot do. But the most important part that I always tell families is when you're looking for someone, you can find anyone to read the trust and say, oh, this is what they need to do. You can find anyone that say, oh, no, I'm so ethical. I will just everything that's here that's I'm going to do. The key is who knows your child, who really knows and understands your child because it's impossible to put everything into the trust. But if you have someone that truly understands, understands Liam, knows Liam, understands what he likes, doesn't like, all of that is important because you can only put so much in the trust. You're gonna have to have someone that truly, truly understands and cares for for your child. That's why that, that decision is the most important decision in any of these cases. It's, it's the same regardless if you have a child with special needs or not. But it, it just, it, it increases when, when we have a child with special needs, depending on, on the severity, but, but still, it's always, it's always top of mind for parents. And we talk a lot about sibling relationships. If you have a child with special needs who's a minor, and then you have an adult child as well, can that adult child be the trustee for your special needs trust? Yes. You can choose anyone. Most parents choose one of the siblings because the siblings have been there. And I would say 90 plus percent of the cases, the trustee is is one of the siblings. And I have found that in, in some families, um, there's always one or two that have always been there that truly understand that are very involved in in the life of the child with special needs and want to be a trustee. They want to be able to continue in their lives. We've had trust that I've put together where one of the siblings comes in and says, when my parents pass away, he can live with me, with my family, my husband, or we go live in mom's house with him. And If that can be done, and I always recommend this to parents, if the child with special needs is living with the parents, they pass away, it's always best if the family moves in there because they're comfortable there, right? They have their own room, they have their own space. And so, you know, they're already going through the tragedy of parents being away. The best thing is to kind of not move that environment too much. But to your question, Stephen, it's always the vast majority of families choose a sibling because uh, who knows them better, right? 
And then when we're talking about the individuals with Down syndrome or special needs who live a more independent life, it's still best to have that person that really knows them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so after these trustees are are set up, um, let's say we pass away when both kids are minors. So I haven't put my adult child as an, as a trustee. And now this child with special needs is outliving the trustees. Can the trustee then appoint the next trustee or it's locked in when, when we pass? The trustee can appoint the next trustee. You, and this is the importance of continuing to update your trust. Because as you move forward, say you have me as a trustee, and then you say, I've had enough of that guy, right? You want to change your trustee. So you want to continue, right? Uh, or you have a family member that was going to be the trustee and there's a falling out, you need to change them. Or they move away to another country. It's like, okay, I got to bring somebody else in. So you want to continue to do that or they get an illness. That's the importance of continuing to update, especially when it comes to trustees. But what would happen in your case is say that Sophia is not 18 yet. We would put a clause in there, which we probably should, that she would become the trustee when she turns 18. Now, if you were to pass away and she's 17, then you have a trustee in place already between that that year. Well, I think that's the challenge, too, is that as you're saying, like someone who really knows your son, Sophia knows him. But I think that is probably the motivation for this whole podcast is like bringing down those misperceptions of of Down syndrome. And who else really knows his ability? Who is going to support that ability? And I think that having someone who really knows him is the best. And then maybe if you don't have somebody who really knows them, or you're looking for that second or third tier, then you have to logically say, well, maybe they don't know them as well as his sister, but who will follow this structure until they get to really understand and know? Who do you trust? Yeah. Who do you trust to... And that's the hardest thing. Like, honestly, when we're dealing with Liam, that is the most challenge is because who do we really trust to support him in the way that we do, to see him the way we see him, to remove those challenges and boundaries, who believe that he has the same opportunity to an education and to go to college if he wants to, just like Sophia does. Who is going to have that same vision? But, you know, it probably won't be the same, but at least you get a voice in it. If the worst happens. So that's the estate plan. That's the trust and the special needs trust. So let's talk about what conservatorship is. So once uh, someone turns 18, regardless of disability, ability, doesn't matter. They're an adult with their own rights. Parents don't have any rights over that 18-year-old. And so many, many of our clients come in when something's happened. Right, so their child with special needs is now 25 years old. Something happened, they take them to the hospital and the doctor says, do you have a conservatorship? You can't make decisions, healthcare decisions for him. And so then they're not able to make any decisions at the hospital or a number of situations, right? So before your child turns 18, so typically around 17 and a half, you wanna start the process of a conservatorship. Conservatorship is where one adult will have decision-making power over another adult. And this is going to be around their financial life, their health care, 
It could be around friends and families that can be around them. It could be the right to vote. It could be the right to marry. It could be all of these decisions that parents are provided with a conservatorship to make over their children. Now, how do I get all these decisions? I would love it for my child to have special needs, but I would like to have all those powers over her, right? Who she marries and all that stuff. So when we put in a petition for a conservatorship, automatically your child with special needs will have their own attorney. Their attorney will make sure that I do my job, which is to make sure that they protect their rights. A judge will always try to lean towards a less restrictive conservatorship. Depending on the ability of the child, you're always going to have a judge that says, well, wait, you want 100% control over their finances. Can they manage any money, anything, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, anything? They're always going to look for some type of independence. So depending on the ability, depending on how severe something may be, the judge will determine how many of these rights. Now, why the the right to marry? The right to marry seems like, wow, right? I have control over who they can marry. The problem that, that we've seen in the past is some of the children that we've seen, now adults, start having friends, can be taken away, and all of a sudden they come back married. They can sign contracts. All of these things are things that the judge is going to look at and say, do they have the ability to understand a marriage contract, buying a car, all of these things. And so the conservatorship is once they become an adult, are there areas where I as the parent or someone else should continue to make these decisions for them because they just don't have the ability to understand some of these decisions? And so a doctor will provide a capacity declaration to determine, do they have the ability to understand these things? And the judge and the attorney for the child with special needs will always try to lean towards providing less restrictions, right? The parents almost always want more restrictions, more ability, more more, uh, opportunities to make decisions versus what a judge wants. But that's where the discussion in court is about the ability of each of these children that are about to become adults. Well, we also want to protect our children to make sure that they're not taken advantage of. You can think of you were naming off things like buying a car or getting married, but what about purchasing something for a quote unquote friend? You know, like typical people get swindled all the time. And this is just a way to kind of say, hey, um, maybe someone can have a little more input and, and, and to assist with decisions. But it, it would be independent to an estate plan? Yeah. So the estate plan is specifically to protect the assets from probate. Special needs trust is to ensure that your child with special needs is not disqualified from public benefits. But that's just for the assets. So you have a trustee that will be able to distribute the assets, provide resources for life. But you also, when Liam turns about to turn 18, you need a conservatorship. Because if you don't have it, then technically he can start making decisions on his own. So you want to have that conservatorship in place as soon as he turns 18. Now, one question that always comes up is, should the trustee of the trust and the person that's going to be the conservator be the same? Most of the time they are. It facilitates that. Doesn't have to be. 
but it just facilitates that the person that has control over the resources and the person who's making financial decisions, healthcare decisions, and other decisions for the adult now typically works well for it to be the same person. Opposing counsel. If you're the lawyer for conservatorship, who determines the opposing counsel? Is that something families have to pay for? No, uh, good question. So that is something the court provides. So they're a court appointed counsel. Uh, every child with special needs that's about to be an adult will have their own counsel. They're experts in this area. So what happens is once they're appointed, they will call me and they will say, I need to speak with the family. Do you give me permission to speak to your clients? Because their client is your child, right? And so there's certain things that they're going to want to see. So they're going to want to interview you. They want to speak to your child. But again, because they're experts, they're very sensitive. They know, they know the disability. They know the abilities. They, they have everything. And so going back to the story I told about from my childhood where there was a kid that had Down syndrome that I would never see, that they were in some dark corner of that house. The advocate, the attorney, the court-appointed counsel will ask the family and will ask the child and siblings, do you have your own room? Tell me about your daily life. Where are your clothes? Show me your toys. Show me where you play. They want to see the environment. And to me, that line of questioning comes back to what I had seen in my childhood, that they were just in some dark room in the back. They weren't part of the family, right? So they want to see, so when you all come to dinner, where do you sit? How does this go? What do you do during your day? How do you, who do you talk to all day? They want to see that that child is part of that family and what that family is doing every day. And it's not just going to be, well, I'm going to have the conservatorship and I'm going to stick them back there. They want to see the quality of life. And so that's why you need that attorney. Not only do they watch and make sure I do my job, but they're advocating for them. And some of these children, it's not Down syndrome autism. It was medical malpractice when they were born. So they also have a lot of money that is now going to be managed by the parents. So the attorney needs to be there and make sure that everything's set up correctly. So, but what I enjoy, I, we call them opposing counsel because they're on the opposite side. But what I enjoy about this is we're on the same team. It truly is one area of the law where it truly isn't opposing. We work at it, we try to do the best. If I miss something, they'll let me know and vice versa. And we go in and we speak to the judge and say, this is the best. Uh, from both of us for, for this family and for this child as, as he or she moves into adulthood. So a conservatorship, is that expensive to file? It could be. It could be. Typically, a conservatorship is going to cost you anywhere between thirty-five dollars and $5,000. Most attorneys charge $5,000 as a retainer. However, unless it's a very complex case, I always tell clients, you can go to the regional center. And the regional center will help you with all of that paperwork and help you file it, help you know how to do it. And that's always going to be, obviously, it's going to be less cost. So I always encourage folks that are looking to get a conservatorship, if you can do it through the regional center, it's going to be at almost at no cost, right, other than the filing fees. Now, some folks that come back and say, oh, you know, my regional center is so busy. 
I just can't get anybody to, to help me, then you can use an attorney. But if you can, if, if it's not a complicated case, and most are not, then I would start with the regional center. It's not going to cost you much. And they, they always have someone to, to help you fill out the paperwork. And regional center is California, but there must be something like that in each state that could yes. help. Yes. Conservatorship mandatory or conservatorship just smart like a estate plan? Mandatory. Mandatory. So that's something that you have to do. Because once they turn 18, they have their own rights, just like anyone else. There is no difference between a child with special needs that becomes an adult and everybody else. They have the same rights as everybody else. So we've had parents say, well, how is this possible? They can't take care of themselves. They have the same rights. But this happens not just with children with special needs. I've had situations where there's a personal injury. I've had situations where the substance abuse is so severe that they've lost the ability to make financial and healthcare decisions and parents have to come in. So conservatorship is there for one adult to be able to make decisions for another adult, regardless of the ability, regardless of the disability, regardless of anything. So a conservatorship is absolutely mandatory in order to make healthcare, financial, and all kinds of decisions for them. I'm always searching for a way to bring equanimity to the situation. And it's this, these are not things that are just specific to having Down syndrome or a disability. No, we've, we just had a client come in. Uh, he had an accident uh, at a construction site. He's in a coma. Wife came in. They didn't have a power of attorney. So she, we need to follow conservatorship. She needs to be able to make financial health care decisions for him. So the conservatorship process is not just for someone, a child with special needs or a disability. It's for everybody that all of a sudden cannot make decisions for themselves. If I'm the conservator and then we pass Sophia as the trustee, in the will, do we say Sophia would become the conservator? You will say in the trust that your wish is for Sophia to be the conservator. So once Liam would turn 17 and a half, she would then file a petition to become his conservator. So this empowers the caregiver or the parent or whoever. It empowers you to get a little closer to the answer of what happens when I'm gone. You have some say. You have the ability to create a guideline and a structure there that could bring some peace in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you use the number 17 and a half or so, like just to kind of uh, get the ball rolling. That's so that we can get a nice image of, of where we are in the life of the child and see what the abilities are? 17 and a half is because it's t- typically going to take you six months, five months to get through that court process, right? So you file the petition, they give you a hearing 40, 50 days out, you know, so you want to give yourself enough time. For the regional center, you probably want to start talking to them, you know, nine months before they turn 18, so just to give them, because you don't want them to turn 18 and you're not done, right? Because at that point, they're adults. Good point. So one thing I wanted to talk about is because you had mentioned severity, and we had talked about this, the, the legalese, the words that are used, because as a parent, when you use some of these words, I, I'll say, Enrique, can you say this? And, or could you say this? And those are just the legal terms. So part of functioning in society that I've experienced is just to know that although we are progressing, although the community is evolving, 
there are still uh, in the medical field, in the legal field, there are still ar- archaic words that are present. So to understand that they're there. When you say, uh, depending on the severity, that's just the legal term. We can know that that also, in my mind, is depending on the ability, but that is the term that's going to be used. And I think that just speaks to the fact that the evolution of society still needs to catch up with where and how we are. I think we're trying to, to think as a society, we're trying to think more positively toward children with and in adults with disabilities, just like how now there's trusts specific for these cases. So we're just working toward being as positive and as equal as, as equal as we evolve is the word you used. Yeah. And that's really, that's certainly to be a goal. Yeah, I think something that needs to evolve uh, and take these words into consideration, especially since it's our business words, uh, is the law. In court, you can certainly, the judge will talk about ability, lawyers can talk about ability, but when we're putting all these documents together, including the doctors, we'll talk about severity. And so it's the negative, right? It's the, instead of the positive, and so in court, we do talk about um, the abilities, but sometimes instead of saying abilities, we'll say less severe, right? And so those are the terms that have been going on for years in court, because those are the terms, that's what the judge wants to determine. How severe is it? Is it less severe? Is it more severe? Um, instead of, you're right, instead of saying, what are the abilities? It's just the terms that we've used and we do need to change in court. Well, it came from a time when these laws being passed were revolutionary that, you know, individuals with disabilities would be even given rights. So this was how disabilities were looked at. And we talk about the power of words. The unfortunate consequence that happens then is as a community, those words kind of plant inside of us. And it takes a lot to dig them out to where we can change severity to ability. And it's an entire mindset that needs to be changed because no matter uh, how hard we advocate for that equality, there's a lot of stuff that we have to break down and break away from. We just have to have an understanding of when it was put into place, why it was put into place, and that gives us insight. We can look across an entire platform and see where certain words were used in different times because that's just when they were used. That was the best word they had. Well, Enrique, you talked about growing up in the 80s and and all the things you had heard about disability and how that cemented your foundation for your approach toward people with disabilities. And so I've learned the same thing after having a child with Down syndrome. I'm a Down syndrome advocate, but I wouldn't have changed any of my views that I learned in the 70s and 80s. I'm a little older than you. (laughs) I would have changed that if if I didn't have Liam or I would have had to be impacted somehow or been open enough that I saw it. And so you can see how even someone with a child with Down syndrome still has to go in and, and change their thought process of things. Absolutely. Um, I will say one thing about court, even though we're, we're still using some negative words. I've been in a lot of courtrooms for probate, for other matters. There is not one courtroom that I've been in that is such a loving place as a court that is dedicated to hearings on conservatorships. Judges are pretty mean to attorneys, and they don't have patience for anything. But when it comes to children with special needs or other adults with disabilities, whether it's a personal injury or anything else, you can hear a pin drop in the other courtrooms. 
it doesn't matter the noise that's speaking. The, it doesn't matter in a courtroom with children with special needs because judges specifically go into that. And to see the advocates for adults, to see with disabilities, to children with disabilities, everyone in there truly is there for the right reasons. I truly enjoy those hearings because you can, you can see it. You can see that the judge, my opposing counsel, that we're all trying to do the right thing for this person uh, and truly care about that they have the most independence that they can after a conservatorship. You know, I say that because it, it truly, um, there's a lot of good people out there that are truly advocating for all of us that may have a disability. And I do believe that, you know, we have idea, we have the, the laws are there. There are people who were passionate advocates that saw the need to change across the board as far as inclusion and equal rights go. It's just the implementation of those laws. So I, but I do, I do love that at the, at the heart, like I go into an IEP, the law is there. And that's what I stand on is the law, the equal rights that are written. It's just the battle can make you battle-worn. And it gives a lot of hope to know, it's just to know that with the conservatorship and the advocates that go into that as far as judges, that there's a great chance that they have the same vision for my child as I do. Yes, the number one thing in any conservatorship is going to be the protection and the independence of that, of that child. And it is, I mean, it is intense. You can see it from the judges. You can see it from the, I mean, it's every T has to be crossed. Everything has to be dotted. Every penny has to be accounted for. I mean, the protection that is provided to them is is uh, something that uh, I truly enjoy watching because it really is, uh, I mean, we're all here to, regardless of disability, regardless of ability, we all should be looking out for each other. And in that courtroom, you can really see that play out. We are watching out for each other. Well, you got it right when you said looking out for each other, and it's something that we need to do regardless of what someone's ability is or differences. It's something that the world needs a lot more of, and we're very fortunate that we have you looking out for us. It's quite a comfort. We've known you for, for a long time. You're a genuine and great human. One of the first people I met when I moved to L.A. 25 years ago or so. It's wonderful how things like evolve, how life just unfolds and the story is told, but we just appreciate what you're doing for this community and for your advocacy and just giving us your time here today. Well, thank you. Uh, those are really kind words. And, you know, Steve and I met uh, in a restaurant as we were both waiting tables. And so, yeah, it's been quite the journey. But I want to thank the two of you because in addition to uh, the work that I've done that's opened up my eyes, it's, it's having seen everything that you all have gone through and the and the passion and advocacy that, and love that you've had for Liam, it really has opened my eyes to this community, I think has made me even a better attorney when it comes to this area. But I've met other parents and I just can't believe how much of advocates they've become. And some don't even speak English and they just, they get it done. They will do whatever it takes for their children. But when it comes to parents that have children with special needs, there's just a little extra there that I've seen that uh, makes you all special. 
Well, Enrique, when you talk about working with different families and different children and meeting them and being opened up to the community, how it's changed you, that is our exact argument for inclusion. How that changed you as a lawyer, as a human, but how if we could just introduce that at the foundation, if in kindergarten you knew a child with autism or with Down syndrome, and you watched them grow, just like as an adult, you watched your cousin grow, and you've been able to observe Liam's life and watch Liam grow and see that it's not really what the picture society has painted is really old that should hang in some really old museum, and we have to get a new picture out there. And if that's what you were raised with, the actual reality, it would have changed you. I think it would change change the fabric of of society. Absolutely. I, you know, I think we should all be five years old because I remember my five-year-old, she was at one of our seminars and she went up to a child that was black. She went up to a child that was Asian. She went up to a child that had Down syndrome. None of them were different to her. They were all five-year-olds. And I remember they took a picture all together, all the different colors and They said, look, we're all princesses. And I think that's what we need more of. You know, as we get older, I think we need to learn a little bit more from our five-year-olds. Enrique, it's been such a pleasure having you with us, and we really appreciate you. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, I'm not sure if you want to talk about the opportunity for access. So we're going to put all your information in the show notes, and then you have actually offered, go ahead, your access. What is it? Tell me. Just for your listeners. I think one of the biggest issues in this country is access to attorneys, access to legal advice. So in partnership with you all, what we want to do is provide 10 of your listeners, 10 of your families with a free one-hour consultation. We are not going to be pushing any kind of salesmanship. This is truly for those families that just want to get some answers, maybe more information on what we presented today. So they would contact you. You'll let us know. We'll set up a consultation via Zoom, in person, however. And it's just to get their questions answered, any issues that they're having, anything like that where we can be helpful. We'd like to do that uh, certainly in partnership with you all. Well, our listeners can get in touch with us through our website, ifweknewthen.com. They can get in touch with us through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all open. And we do hear from a lot of you. So um, please. This isn't something that we normally do, but it is something that... um, you know, you had mentioned that we try to ask all the questions, but there may be someone out there who I haven't asked the question because like you said, every family is different. So if you have a question that I haven't answered, reach out to us and and you've offered to donate a consultation to 10 of our, and consultation sounds like such a legal word. Basically you've offered to talk to 10 of our listeners for an hour and answer any personal questions that we have not answered. You've offered up your time to some of our listeners to answer those specific questions because people probably have very specific questions that don't even come into my brain. Absolutely. Each of these topics we discuss have subtopics. So there'll be very specific questions to them and they don't have to spend one hour with me. We could just answer their questions quickly. Enrique, thank you so much for your time. Thank you all. I appreciate the opportunity. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. 
or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come